Thanks for listening to the Henry Center podcast. We seek to bridge the gap between the academy and the church by cultivating resources and communities that advance Christian wisdom. If you'd like to learn more about the Henry Center, please visit our website at henrycenter.org. There you can find hundreds of articles, videos, and publications which promote theological understanding. The best way to stay connected with us is to subscribe to our newsletter, though you can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. If you're able, we'd love to see you at one of our upcoming events, hosted at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Our public lectures feature scholars and pastors offering careful reflection on a range of biblical, theological, and ecclesial topics. We hope you enjoy today's discussion. Good afternoon. It is a delight to see all of you and welcome you to this very special event this afternoon on the Trinity campus. Uh, We are honored that you have joined us. Uh, There are still a few seats down front on the aisles, so if you want, those of you in the back want to make your way uh, down uh, to to join us. We're so thankful to have each and every one of you here uh, this afternoon. Uh, We've been looking forward to this time. We know it's going to be uh, informative. We pray it will be helpful and edifying and uh, that indeed uh, we will all uh, leave this place today uh, ever grateful that we can together confess that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In that regard, would you please join me as we pray together. Almighty God, we bow before you as the majestic creator. We recognize you as the one true and living God, and we thank you that you have made yourself known to us, Father, Son, and Spirit. We adore you and praise you and worship you. We thank you for redeeming us in Christ, for giving us grace and life through the Spirit and for bringing us together this afternoon. We thank you, O God, for Dr. Jack Collins and Dr. Al Moeller, and we pray your blessings upon them, your divine enablement for them. We thank you for Chris Firestone and ask that you give him wisdom as he guides our conversation today. We thank you for students and faculty who are here, as well as friends from across the EFCA and from the Trinity family. We pray that this would be not only an informative time and a helpful time, but an enjoyable time as we fellowship together before, after, and throughout these days. So we ask that you might use it for good in our lives to advance the gospel and to bring glory to your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. It is indeed a delight to welcome you. We're glad that you're here for this creation project uh, event on the uh, Trinity campus. Many of you are guests with us, friends from across the EFCA. You're part of that conference. Others are here just for this event. If this is the first time on the Trinity campus or you've not been here for a while, we certainly want to uh, 
thank you for joining us and invite you perhaps as you go back to your car or to across the street to the for the meal time to let you know that you might want to stop in the library. You can see the Woodbridge Reading Room as soon as you walk into the library, which features 500 uh, volumes from the Trinity, prolific Trinity faculty, uh, the John Stott Memorabilia, the Carl Henry Memorabilia, some wonderful things that you might want to see while you're here. We are so glad and welcome students, staff, faculty, EFCA friends, and guests. I want to thank Greg Strand and uh, Kevin Complin, uh, our friends with the EFCA, for their part in hosting this event this afternoon and allowing it to be a part of the theology conference that we will enjoy together today, tomorrow, and uh, Friday, as well as the entire EFCA week that our students and faculty have enjoyed this week. So grateful to Tom McCall and the Carl F. H. Henry Center staff for their work in coordinating, preparing us for uh, today. They've done a wonderful job. This is a part of a three-year project that the Henry Center is uh, leading, a creation project. Uh, this year with a focus on Genesis, next year with a focus on the doctrine of creation, the year after that with a conversation related to science and faith. And in that regard, we certainly thank the uh, Templeton Religion Trust, Templeton Foundation, Michael Murray, and others who have been so generous in supporting this event, and uh, so we thank God for them. I, I want uh, you to know that uh, this is also a part of the Trinity Debate Series. Uh, the Trinity Debate Series happens here on a semester-by-semester -semester basis, with different kind of issues that uh, come to the forefront that we consider across this campus as we seek to engage the academy, to engage the culture, and think about important ideas from the past and issues of our day. And Professor Chris Firestone serves as the moderator for those debates on a regular basis, and he'll be ser serving in that role today, and he will come in just a few minutes. He serves as Professor of Philosophy at Trinity uh, College, and we thank you, Chris, for your leadership uh, today. Those debates often are between uh, Christian ideas and non-Christian ideas, or sometimes between issues of orthodoxy and things that are on the periphery. Um, today is an in-house conversation, a fraternal conversation. Uh, it is one in which there will be obvious mutual respect uh, between those who are uh, participating. Uh, it is, it, in many ways, it's an intramural uh, conversation. It's less of a deb debate in some ways, more of a conversation, a, a dialogue. There are very real differences, but uh, you will hear those differences perhaps in ways you may not hear them in other debate formats. Respectful exchange will take place. There's much in common. So we share together a commitment to belief in Genesis chapter 1 to affirm the Apostles' Creed, uh, confession of the historical Adam and Eve, uh, but there are nevertheless real differences that we want to talk about and understand why they are important uh, this afternoon. Our two participants read the Genesis text a bit differently. 
Some of that is because one's a theologian, one's a biblical scholar. You'll hear some of that. Some of it is out of genuine conviction and how they approach uh, these matters. But you'll see there's real respect and Christian charity between them. So today there are no winners, no losers. We hope that there is um, mutually edifying conversation for all of us. And we trust it will be a very, very uh, informative time in that regard. So let me introduce our two uh, participants, if I may. Dr. Jack Collins. Many of you have read Dr. Collins' work. He is a, a brilliant Old Testament scholar. He serves as professor of Old Testament at Covenant Seminary, where he has been since 1993. He has written important work on the historical uh, Adam, important works on science and faith, uh, works on the book of uh, Genesis. Uh, we've all read his work and profited from it. We're grateful that he is with us this year. He has taken a leave from Covenant Seminary and serves as a scholar in residence for the Creation Project here at Trinity uh, this year. Uh, his background is an impressive one. He has an undergraduate degree and a graduate degree in computer science and engineering from MIT as well as his MDiv and then a PhD from the University of Liverpool. And so, Dr. Collins, we are delighted that you are here, and Mrs. Collins, that you are this with us as well. Uh, we are also glad to have our other participant uh, here. He'll be speaking in chapel, the chapel hour tomorrow during the theology conference at 11 o'clock, and I'll introduce him a little more personally at that time. Uh, our history goes back together a long time, but also in 1993, Dr. Albert Moeller moved to his current position as president uh, and the Joseph Emerson Brown Professor of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. For the past 24 years, he has provided extraordinary and impressive leadership for that institution. Uh, many of you know him because of his engagement uh, publicly as a public intellectual voice for Christian faith. He is an author, denominational leader, evangelical uh, statesman, and we are just delighted to have uh, Dr. Moeller here as well as Dr. Collins. Would you join me, please, and welcome them both to Trinity. Dr. Firestone is also a very fine thinker, holds a PhD from the University of Edinburgh and an outstanding philosopher in his own right, but he serves as our moderator, as I said, for the Trinity debates and for today. So would you please welcome Dr. Chris Firestone. everyone to uh, the 2017 installment of the Trinity Debates on the campus of Trinity International University. If you haven't been to Trinity in a while, uh, a special welcome to you and to the conference here. Welcome also to everyone watching, uh, streaming live over the internet. We're glad that you're here with us as well. I'm Dr. Chris Firestone. I'm serving as moderator of today's debate. The topic of the debate, as you probably know, is does scripture speak definitively to the age of the universe? President and Dr. L. Moeller from South, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is here to answer yes, it does speak definitively to the age of the universe and provide a rationale for that position. 
Uh, Henry Fellow and a resident scholar here uh, and longtime Covenant uh, Seminary professor Jack Collins is going to answer no, it does not speak definitively to the age of the universe and provide a rationale for that position. As you can see, the Henry Center, in cooperation with the Templeton uh, Foundation and the EFCA, have done a wonderful job of putting this together. This is one of the tightest crowds I can recall in quite some years in the Trinity debate, so thank you guys for helping us put that together. Uh, I think particularly of uh, President uh, Dockery, Felix Theonagrahu, Tom McCall, Jeffrey Fulkerson, Greg Strand, and a host of others that help put this thing together and make this possible. There has been a lot of behind-the-scenes work that uh, has gone into making this event possible, and I'm just uh, thankful that, uh, that that's taken place. And uh, we all pray that this is going to be a cordial, God-honoring, and a real service uh, to, every, to everybody uh, who, who's in attendance and listening here today. Now, I suspect that in defending these respective positions, Dr. Moeller will contend that a plain sense understanding of Scripture will point to a young age of the earth and of the human species. While Dr. Collins will argue that it's such a straightforward reading of Scripture will point to, or at least leave the door open for, understanding the earth as being old and that that's the most viable option before us. With these contentions uh, in conflict, we will no doubt weigh deeply into the evangelical options for understanding the relationship between the claims of science and the creation narrative. Because of the strict time limit that we have here of two hours, we'll not be able to handle all the many questions that's going, that are gonna come up or come up in your head uh, as this debate goes on. What we will do instead, however, is conduct the debate in three stages. So in stage one, uh, we will allow each participant the floor for about 25 minutes to give their opening statement. In stage two, we will have a three-way conversation between Drs. Moeller, Collins, and myself. This will provide a chance not only for me to probe their positions as an interested and informed layman might, but also for them to ask each other questions as they feel or deem it's appropriate. And uh, during the second stage, I'm asking each participant to have a moderate amount of time for their answers, somewhere between three to four minutes, so that both parties have roughly an equal chance to share their insights. In the third stage, I will ask questions of each participant that are received from the online community and from the audience. We will be collecting these questions twice, so be on the lookout for that. If you really have a question, you're a pressing question, make sure you fill out one of these cards that will be passed around by the Henry Center staff. Uh, once at the beginning of stage two and then again at the beginning of stage three, you'll see those, you'll have an opportunity to turn those in, and then we will uh, look those over and ask some of the best ones of the, uh, of the participants. At that stage, in stage three, we're asking them to keep their answers a little bit more concise so we can get through as many of those uh, card questions as we can possibly do in the time remaining. Before we get started with Dr. Moeller's opening statement as the yes side of today's question, first allow me a, a brief word about the irenic and evangelical nature of the debate here today. Um, at no time in my lifetime has charity and fidelity within the church been more important than right now. The church is under fire on multiple sides, um, religious, cultural, scientific, etc. 
This is one of those topics that can engender strong emotions and it can easily become heated and divisive, but it doesn't have to turn out that way. If anyone feels like uh, getting belligerent during the, uh, during the proceedings, which I don't expect from a large group of pastors, but you never know, you know. Um, I'll just remind you of what God said to, to Job in Job 38. God said, and I quote, brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? <laughs> Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. In other words, we are dealing fallibly with a very important but unsettled question linking biblical exegesis with scientific inquiry. It will require our collective understanding and prayerful attention to detail if we are to hear and heed God's rich insight on this matter. There are, however, some evangelical basics that, if accepted, will place us all on common intellectual ter ter terrain in this conversation. Evangelicals in the EFCA sense hold in common the following convictions. One, that God is the creator of all things out of nothing. Two, that he pronounced his creation very good. Three, that God created with order and purpose. Four, that God is the sovereign ruler over all creation, which by his personal and particular providence, he continues to sustain. Five, that God created the first human beings, the historical Adam and Eve, uniquely in his image. And six, that though their sin, uh, that through their sin all humanity, along with the created order, is now fallen. This statement, or these this framing as I've, uh, as I've laid it out, does not speak to the precise process of creation or to the age of the universe. To be acceptably within the EFCA parameters in this discussion, one must affirm these minimal aspects of the statement of faith. To my understanding, both participants in the debate meet these basic requirements. It is thus within these parameters that we find ourselves debating two distinct ways of parsing out the issue of Genesis and the age of the earth. So without further ado, I will now pass over the microphone and the floor to our per first participant in tonight's debate, Dr. R. Albert Moeller. Please provide him with a warm and hearty Trinity welcome. Well, thank you so very much. I was just recently introduced to give a keynote address at a, uh, at a meeting. As I got up, the host turned to me and said, we're, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, so we need your address to be uh, 25 minutes. And I turned to him and I said, well, then you need an Episcopalian. Uh, because Southern Baptist hardly knows how to say hello in 25 minutes, but I understand the constraints of this, uh, of this event, and I am very honored to be here. And uh, I appreciate the comments made by Professor Firestone and by Dr. Dockery in introducing this event. And uh, I want to say, first of all, how indebted I am uh, to, uh, to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and, uh, and, and how indebted evangelicals in the United States are to the Evangelical Free Church in America. And, uh, Thus, I take it as a rare privilege and stewardship to participate in this. 
And so I want to express that appreciation to President Dockery and uh, also to express appreciation to Professor Jack Collins for the, uh, for the nature of this conversation and, and for the fact that uh, I have already profited greatly by reading his works over the years. And uh, so it's a privilege to be engaged in this kind of substantive and important conversation as well defined by our moderator. I had uh, reservations uh, about such an event billed as a debate. Not that I'm in any way reluctant to debate this issue, uh, but because sometimes a debate insinuates that uh, the goal will be to win an argument at all costs, uh, whatever is necessary. And I appreciate the fact that, that that is not what we're about here, but rather an arenic conversation amongst those who share charismatic commitments and uh, a commitment to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and, and yet who also love doctrine and love the scripture and understand that it is our responsibility to help one another to think through all of these questions most faithfully. I believe this question is important, and uh, otherwise I wouldn't have given this time, nor would you have gathered with this time. But I think we need to be very clear that what we're debating here is not a fundamental question of theological orthodoxy. There's a, there's a reason why the specific question we're addressing is not a part of the ecumenical creeds. Uh, it's also important that we be careful, given the way this conversation has sometimes been carried out, even in evangelical circles. Uh, I'm standing here where uh, Harold O.J. Brown once, uh, once taught, and I'm, uh, I'm thinking of his great work on heresy, and as he rightly pointed out, the word is often underused and is, on the other hand, overused. And so I, I want to say that heresy ought to be reserved for a teaching that denies a truth essential to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to have charismatic importance, which is why heresy is first attached to questions of Christology and Trinity. And thus, uh, we want to be good stewards of that category. This is, this is not the category at stake here. We also understand that all of us, whether we do this intentionally and strategically or uh, rather anecdotally, understand that there is a ranking of various theological doctrines, creedal concerns, and theological questions. About 20 years ago, I wrote an article uh, trying to make a case for what I call theological triage. I actually got that because my, my mother served as a triage nurse in an emergency room at one point. And it's a French term, as you know, for deciding which case appearing at a medical facility needs priority treatment. Something that, by the way, interestingly, was, uh, was not in place until fairly modern times, which may tell you why more people died in hospitals than survived. You have to know what's most important. A gunshot wound takes priority over an insect bite uh, or, or over a case of the strep throat. And, and, and that's necessary. You can't have medicine without that kind of, of ranking of priority. And theologically, I suggested that we ought to think at least in terms of first order, second order, and third order doctrines. Uh, those first order doctrines constitute the faith. Uh, without which one cannot be a Christian. There is no Christianity. The early church had to answer these questions very quickly. And, of course, we're assisted in this in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul, for example, who in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 spoke of those things which had been delivered as of first importance. And there he spoke of the crucifixion and the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that means that if someone violates one of these first-order doctrines, they are then not to be recognized as a brother or sister in Christ. If one denies the Trinity, if one denies uh, the full confession of Christology, then, uh, then one is outside not only Christian orthodoxy, but Christianity. The second level doctrines are those that are necessary 
as a matter of confession and commonality in order to constitute a church or a denomination or to establish a Christian institution. There has to be some kind of confessional parameter. And in almost every case, which is why we have denominations, we, we, we have specific teachings that we do not claim are charismatic in importance. They're not essential to the gospel, but they are essential to our identity as we understand what it means uh, to constitute a church or a denomination, which means we understand that there's a distinction between that which is not a church and that which we believe to be a wrongly ordered or not rightly ordered church or denomination. We can recognize these as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, but we will not be members of their churches, nor will they be members of ours. They will not teach in our institution, nor will we teach in theirs. But we don't call them heretics. And then there are, there are the third order doctrines or third order theological questions that are matters of real consequence because all truth is God's truth. And, and, and every teaching of scripture is to be received and affirmed and understood as best we can within the, the scheme of our own faithfulness. But we cannot only disagree on these issues and recognize one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but we can be members of the same church and can teach on the same faculty and, uh, and do so without any, any compromise of conscience. So that raises the question. So what are we dealing with here? Uh, the question posed in this debate, uh, does scripture speak definitively to the age of the universe? Well, here I wanna point out that we have the problem that sometimes doctrines move. Uh, sometimes they move in that sense of ranking, especially between second and third order issues, given the urgency of a moment and given the implications of certain doctrines and theological position. So let me be clear. I believe the question we are dealing with today is by nature a third order question. Uh, so that is to say, not only do I have many friends who hold to, uh, to the contrary position, and not only do I recognize them as friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, but also as colleagues, uh, which is to say, I, I not only accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ, I hire them for the theology faculty uh, for which I am responsible. So it's not an issue that defines orthodoxy uh, even within uh, the institution that I lead. But it's not an unimportant question. Richard Weaver said rightly, ideas have consequences. We understand that doctrines have consequences. And, and we understand that truth is integral means that things are tied together. So there are questions that are attached to how one answers this question that could eventually have charismatic importance. So for example, this has already been stated, uh, the historicity of Adam uh, as clearly revealed in scripture and, and, and not only as an historical figure and not only as federal head, but as the biological ancestor of all the living. Uh, if one does deny that or compromise that, you do end up with an issue of charismatic importance. I don't believe that's at stake uh, in the debate that we're having today, and, and happily so. But it is to say, we have to be careful as we're talking about how one places an issue like this in relative scale of importance, that that sometimes depends upon what is behind and what comes with uh, the answer to such a question. Now. That's to say that we need to be clear, the theory of evolution per se is not the question in this debate. The historic Adam as both federal head and biological ancestor of all human beings is, is not in question. And uh, I appreciate so much the fact that Dr. Collins has so comprehensively affirmed the importance of the historical Adam in scripture and in Christian theology. The historicity of the fall is not in question. That means this is a discrete question about Genesis and the age of the universe. And, and here, as Dr. Dockery has already pointed out, 
we come with two different sets of expertise, uh, two different perhaps sets of questions with which we, we daily, constantly operate. I am a theologian. And uh, Dr. Dockery and I served on the faculty at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary together. And uh, he will remember Dr. George Beasley Murray, who had uh, a friendly but rather infamous uh, ongoing argument with theologian Dale Moody. And every time they would get into an argument, Dale Moody would grab his Greek New Testament and throw it back at the New Testament scholar. Leading Beasley Murray at one point to say, I am chagrined, I cringe every time I see a theologian with a Greek New Testament. <laughs> he went on to say they're always set to prove something with his British condescension marked with uh, added to his New Testament offense. Well, that is to say that I am here as a theologian and uh, I did not bring my Hebrew Old Testament, uh, although I am instructed in it and learn from it, and I believe what I'm saying is consistent with uh, that plain sense reading of Genesis 1. What am I trying to present here? I would argue for what I call classical biblical creationism. And my ambition in this is perhaps best articulated by Thomas Oden, not on this question, but on this understanding of theology. We, we should seek to express the faith in terms of the consensus, fidelium, in such a way that on the basis of the authority of Scripture, we, we seek to read the Scripture along with those who have faithfully come before us. If there is to be correction, it must be by the Scripture. And we also understand that this classical understanding means that it is not tied either apologetically nor dogmatically to any particular moment in human history. That faith, once for all delivered to the saints, uh, should not be on essential questions determined by when a Christian lives or when a Christian theologian does that work. We understand that in our fallibility and fallenness and in our, our chronological fixedness and temporality, that will inevitably show up. But our goal should be that that not be what characterizes our beliefs, but rather that we are in that consensus fidelium, that consensus of the faithful throughout the ages. I'm not a scientific creationist. I defined this as classical biblical creationism. It's not to say that I'm opposed to scientific creationism, and I think those who are scientific creationists are often maligned as uh, arguing what is, uh, is, is frankly not their argument, and I will let them make that argument best. The main reason I'm not a scientific creationist is because I am not a scientist. Uh, I am not best placed to make those arguments. I am a theologian. Now, another acknowledgement. According to the dominant consensus view of academic scientists, and now for some time, the cosmos appears to be very old and appears to operate as if very old. And, and by old, we're talking old. <laughs> something like 4 billion years for our universe, something like 13.8 billion years for the, the cosmos. That's the, that's the current scientific consensus. Furthermore, the scientific consensus includes larger worldview issues that that now require, according to that worldview, a very old cosmos. So we ask the question, why not just join and affirm a universe that is billions of years old? Well, the answer is this. I believe I am bound by scripture as read by the church for 1,800 years, 
and a view that is symphonically affirmed by Old Testament texts outside of Genesis. I believe that the embrace of an old earth comes with theological and hermeneutical consequences that can have far-reaching effects and, and potentially damaging, doctrinally harmful effects. In summary, I believe that an affirmation of an old earth universe is, first, not most faithful as an act of biblical interpretation. Second, not most in keeping with the consensus fidelium. Third, not without potentially disastrous theological consequences and uh, not required by the evidence. Fourthly, uh, particularly the biblical evidence. Quickly, first, it's not most faithful as an act of biblical interpretation. I assume together the affirmation of the total truthfulness and trustworthiness of the Holy Scriptures is the Word of God. I, I assume as the consensus of uh, not only the debaters on this stage, but of the pastors in this room, of sola scriptura as affirmed by the reformers. In reading the Pentateuch, the question is, how are we to read Genesis? How are we to read Genesis 1 through 11? And specifically to this question, how are we to read Genesis 1? And, and here I would affirm, just as you would expect, a, uh, a plain sense natural reading of the text. But there's more to it than that. It is clear that Genesis is an historical narrative, and it is clear that it means to convey as divine revelation an historical narrative that is absolutely foundational, not only for Israel, but also for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that is to say that I believe we are to read Genesis as normal history in the sense that we are to believe that the events unfolded just as revealed in space and in time and in history the very same space, time, and history as we see in Genesis chapter 12 and following. Uh, indeed, what we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 explains the very origins of space and, uh, and time and history. The primal affirmation would be found in the first words of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. As Derek Kidner has suggested and Dr. Collins has affirmed, this is majestic prose, and of course it is. It's it, it, it's so majestic that uh, it, it reaches poetry. It is, it, it is so much a part of our faith and our worldview and our reading of Scripture that it, it comes so naturally to us to complete the sentence if someone else were to begin it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is elevated prose to the quality of poetry, but it's also historical narrative with theological commentary on the divine acts of creation. And I believe it's history in the sense that we, understand history. We're informed by recent scholarship in ancient Near Eastern literature, and thus we understand there is a, an intellectual background, even an apologetic background, uh, to what we read in Genesis. But I think that's exactly how we should read Genesis, that God revealed through Moses in what we read as the first two chapters of Genesis not only the account of the historic acts of creation that we are to take as fundamental to the faith, but also an answer to the various pagan beliefs that were so prevalent in the ancient Near East that gave an alternative worldview and alternative claim to creation. I believe we can learn much by reading a scholar like John Walton, but I cannot accept that the church has misread Genesis 1 as telling us virtually nothing about the material world, how that material world came into existence. We can learn from Meredith Klein and many others who hold to something like the framework theory. But I cannot believe that the church has misread Genesis 1 as both historical and sequential. The issue comes down in one sense to the, the word day. It's inescapable, yom. 
And in this, the context, as is always the case, is determinative. In Genesis 1, the context is greatly aided by the structure in the, in the evening and the morning, the first day, the second day, the days continuing through the sixth day of creation and then the seventh day of rest. A plain reading of the text reveals six 24-hour days of creation followed by a day of divine rest. Is this a literal interpretation of the text? Well, here you have the literal problem with the word literal that literally vexes all of us. So let's just, let's just avoid the word literal, and I will instead say it's, a, it's, I believe, a natural reading of the text within the context. And uh, it is the way in that the mainstream of the Christian church has read these texts throughout the ages. Dr. Collins' proposal for a discourse analysis that aims to identify ancient literary competence is, I think, very helpful as a way of, of seeking to read scripture. However, it doesn't convince me to abandon a natural reading of the text. I said those other texts in the Old Testament are largely determinative for me. In other words, if one were to have the question, and in a moment we'll ask why one would have that question, but if one were to have the question, if possibly the world were very old, and thus the days were not to be understood as 24-hour days, I think that would be answered, just honestly, in, in terms of texts like Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. When we read, for in six days God made heaven and earth, I believe it is to be understood in that context as well as referring to normal 24-hour days. Genesis 5, verses 1 and 2, In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and named them man in the day, that's twice in the same two verses here, when they were created. Now, the emphasis upon day appears to be something more than just poetic repetition. There, there is more here. Deuteronomy 4, verse 32, For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was heard of. If we found in Genesis 1 evidence that we should understand these days as something other than 24-hour days, we might read these later references in a metaphorical or poetic light. But we find no such evidence within Genesis 1. Instead, I believe, to the contrary, we, we find that all of these references together point to the assumption of a 24-hour day. Nothing in the scripture that I can find suggests an old cosmos, even extended time, much less indefinite time in Genesis 1. Second, very quickly, I believe that uh, the answering the question, yes, in terms of the scripture speaking to the age of the earth, is, is because an old earth position is, is not most in keeping with the consensus fidelium. The church faithful has read Genesis 1 as relating real history within 24-hour days, and two caveats here, until recently and with some exceptions. And uh, that is to say that, uh, that one can debate about certain statements made by patristic fathers and, and, and others, and even Calvin in terms of the reformers. But the interesting thing is how anecdotal those are. And uh, again, I appreciate the work Dr. Collins has done in pointing out that when it comes to two figures, in particular Augustine and Ambrose, uh, th those are often taken out of context. We, we really can't answer the question we're trying to debate here on the basis of how either someone like Augustine or Ambrose tried to, uh, to deal with the interpretation of Genesis. And with Ambrose, uh, not even particularly that. It's also really interesting that by you get, the time you get to the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, you have Martin Luther, not often cited by those, who would argue against a young earth because it was so clear that uh, Luther believed in it. And also, by the time you get to the Westminster Divines in the 17th century, 
uh, it, it's clear that this is now something that they believed apologetically needed to be answered. The great change comes with the rise of modern cosmology, geology, science, claims that the earth, and by extension the universe, is and must be very, very old. Now, we understand that these intellectual changes preceded Darwin, but Darwin's a good historical marker, and Darwinism is the real crisis. The rise of modern evolutionary theory and the worldview marked by materialism and naturalism. And, and thus we hear coming from so many who are the proponents of some theistic evolution, they were understand that there are two books of God, his word and his works, scripture and nature. And, and that is absolutely true. Scripture itself makes that point emphatically true. In a text like Romans chapter 1, the question is, which norms the other? As Martin Luther said of Scripture, it must be norma, normans, non normata. It's the norm that can't be normed. Uh, the reason we have special revelation, and again, Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 1, is because even as God has revealed his invisible attributes and his divine power in the things that he has made, the creature denies and corrupts that knowledge. Thus, we are in desperate need of special revelation, first of all in Scripture, but consequently in Christ, which is the point that Paul makes in Romans chapter 10. Why the preaching of the gospel is so absolutely necessary, because if it is not preached, they will not hear, and who do not hear, they will not believe, and if they do not believe, they will not be saved. Now, there's much more I'd like to say here about the, uh, the engagement of uh, evangelicals and Protestants with, uh, with these questions, but I have to go quickly to the third point, I believe it's not without potentially disastrous theological consequences. What does the age of the universe tell us? What would an old universe, a very old universe, tell us? Well, it tells us not only about age, it tells us about a great deal more. Uh, how one answers this question involves a necessary meta-narrative of, of what the, the age of the earth would then be telling us. The great apologetic challenge of a dominant model, of, of the dominant model of evolution and its cosmological model, it, it excludes even the possibility of divine direction. It insists not only that the world is old, but that it was neither created nor designed nor directed. It also insists that human beings were not created by a special act of divine creation, but descended from other hominids with no common ancestor to all homo sapiens. It's a worldview that musters not only geological evidence, but astrophysics and genetics, among other fields, to insist that it is impossible that the biblical account in Genesis could be true in any respect. Uh, the, perhaps the, the newest line of evidence here is the genomic evidence against a, bio, a common biological ancestor, a common mother and father of all humanity. And, and that's what we're seeing on the side of the theistic evolutionists. And, that's not what's being debated here. But what we see there is basically a rejection of Augustinian Christianity. And, and some of them are so bold as to put it in just those terms. That, that means it is charismatic. The question then comes down to this. Have we misread the Old Testament? Has the church through the ages misread the Old Testament? Did Paul misread the Old Testament? And are we misreading Paul? I believe that it is of charismatic importance to understand the special creation of humanity, that is the special creation of Adam and Eve, and to understand Adam as the historic ancestor to all humanity and our federal head. And that means the fall must be historic. And I would also argue that it is of charismatic significance that the flood was also historical, since it roots salvation history, not only in Adam and the descent from Adam, but also from Noah. So. No one is here making the argument for theistic evolution. So why do I bring it up here? It is simply because I believe that an old earth position leaves the door open and weakens the defense, the necessary apologetic, 
uh, against what I believe does have charismatic significance and does do disastrous theological damage. That is to say that one of my principles is Occam's razor. As a theologian, I want to embrace and involve no arguments that are unnecessary to making the point. I believe the point is the gospel as read by the church and thus the kerygma, the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I, I believe that there are entailments, even on that third order level, that can have second order significance. And if we're not careful, then first order significance as well. Occam's razor would just remind me as a theologian, I want to take within my theological system nothing that is unnecessary and uh, nothing that would open the door to, uh, to weakening the theological system, I believe, is revealed in Scripture. We care about the gospel and the intellectual defense of the Christian faith. We earnestly desire to read the Bible faithfully. And I know that includes all of us. The question is how to do that. Finally, I believe it's not required by the evidence. I honestly do not believe we will be having this conversation without the rise of the modern apologetic challenge posed by modern science and, and modern cosmology. We're required by intellectual integrity to follow the evidence. Let's be very honest about that. And there are multiple lines of evidence. Just to, to, to mention five, geological, radiological, biological, astronomical, and now genetic. So, I agree that the universe appears to be old and to operate as if it were very old. I hold, as a theologian, to a phenomenological understanding of the Earth's age, that is, the universe. This is not an argument for what has been dismissed as apparent age. I don't believe that the, the age of the Earth is merely apparent, as if God is deceiving us, but rather it is age as accounted for in the trauma of creation, fall, flood, and sin. I think we have to read the history of the world geologically, in other ways, understanding what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, that all of nature is groaning under the weight of God's judgment on our sin. We also have to recognize that modern scientists themselves are reading the evidence in a way that is based upon their own worldview with certain very crucial presuppositions, and one of those is uniformitarianism. And uh, you go back to Charles Lyell in the 19th century, and it was simply positing the fact that time as we know it now uh, must be time as it always has been. The conditions under which we see the world operate now must be the conditions under which it has always operated. That is not a provable fact. That is a presupposition. You take that presupposition away, and I believe that the flow of biblical history and the meta narrative of the Bible directly takes it away, then you're dealing with a world that will tell us a story and tell us a story truthfully if it is rightly understood, but it can actually only be rightly understood through the lens of Scripture. That doesn't mean that science doesn't tell us anything. And I do not believe I'm hypocritical to have flown here on an airplane, uh, nor, nor to have subjected myself to CAT scans. I believe that scientists are not seeking to lie to us, but rather operating on the basis of their own presuppositions. They are telling us what they honestly believe to be true. And the operations they describe are not to be dismissed as therefore abstract and untrue. It is simply that our presuppositions lead us to believe that those operations are explained otherwise than by a universe that is 14 billion years old. That is to say, the primary framework through which I seek to read all of these things is the creation, fall, redemption, new creation, meta-narrative of Scripture. I seek, as do all of you, and as I know does Dr. Collins, to be most faithful as a reader of Scripture and most faithful as a theologian who would serve the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think as we think about these things, we have to understand that a full affirmation of the authority, truthfulness, and authority of Scripture is endangered by any position that leads persons to have to read the Scripture differently than the church in terms of the consensus fidelium has read it throughout the centuries. We're going to privilege someone somewhere. I'm going to privilege 18 centuries of Christian history over the last couple of hundred years of scientific advance. Does the Bible speak definitively about the age of the universe? I answer, yes. I don't believe we're given a number of years. I believe we're given a span of time, something between six and 10,000 years. But about how God created the earth, and that far radically more recently than the modern scientific consensus tells us, does the Bible speak definitively? Yes, it speaks truthfully and authoritatively. In that sense, definitively. I answer the question, yes. Thank you. Dr. Dockery, uh, Dr. Firestone, Dr. Moeller, uh, brothers and sisters here, and uh, you watching from the comfort of your own computer screen, it is a treat and an honor to be with you this afternoon. Uh, my task is to answer, uh, to explain why I answer the question, does scripture speak definitively about the age of the universe with a clear no? Now, as uh, Dr. Moeller was just saying, all Christians agree on some things about Genesis and about creation. We all agree that this is God's world, that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is God's world because he made it, and he made it out of nothing. Uh, I hope that we all believe that the human race began with God specially creating our first parents, who by their disobedience made us, their children, into sinners. We all believe that the same God who made the world is the one who revealed himself to Israel uh, and the one who became incarnate in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead and who will return to bring us and the world to perfect holiness and glory. Uh, and it wasn't Ambrose, it was Anselm uh, whom I've, uh, I know. Um, but uh, uh, Anselm helping us with our understanding of cur deus alma, why God became man. But beyond that, of course, we have differences, and some of those differences really matter to us. Well, let me be a little bit more controversial than what I've just said and speak of how I think the Bible invites us to think about the sciences. I would say that, first of all, it invites us to respect the sciences in general, uh, and even to allow that they might say some things that are true, even when it's non-believers who are speaking. At the same time, we have to be cautious because some who speak in the name of science overstep their bounds. But abuse does not take away proper use. Now, all of us in principle are in favor of using our scientific knowledge to help us interpret the Bible. That's why we don't expect rivers to be clapping their hands, like in Psalm 98. We don't expect mountains to skip like rams in Psalm 114. Uh, we're comfortable when we read language about the pillars of the earth, taking that as a poetical description because of the researchers, researches of the geologists. So the issue isn't whether, but how to do so responsibly. 
Well, our title asks us to focus on Genesis. And of course, the main item there is the interpretation of Genesis 1 and its creation days. I'm going to take most of my time on that subject. But there are additional topics as well. Um, and Dr. Moeller's actually raised some of them. And I'll make brief remarks about them as time allows, uh, just to keep Dr. Firestone in his seat. Um, I, I will um, try to observe that. It would not be a pretty picture at all. But for example, do the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 give us a timeline? Does Genesis imply that animal death and other natural evils result from the fall of our first parents? What kind of stance towards science and scientists might biblical faithfulness call us to? So let's get going. But, uh, but before I get to the stuff that's really controversial, let me say a few things about reading Genesis that most of us will probably agree with to establish my ground for uh, making my points that are more controversial. So uh, you know that there are many ways of reading the creation days as regular days, as long ages, as a literary framework, and there are others beside. And I'm actually arguing for neither of the ones, uh, for none of the ones that I've just listed, as a matter of fact. Uh, we're all aware that this is tied up with questions of the Bible's right to speak about the history of the earth and how that relates to science. Well, rather than comparing and contrasting the different approaches, I'm simply going to show you how I read the passage. We want to try to examine Genesis 1 and 2 for what it aims to say and to do. It was C.S. Lewis who once observed, the first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. Uh, and that certainly applies as we think about the early chapters of Genesis. When it comes to the Bible, we who confess its inspiration should assume that the Bible text that we're looking at is the right tool for its job. And this means that we can figure out what tool or what job it's there to do by figuring out what it's the right tool for. And we should be careful not to use it for the things that it wasn't meant to do. Now, I'm fairly traditional in my views of who wrote this. Namely, I think that the best answer is Moses. Now, Moses has been dead for a long time, uh, and everybody who knew him has also been dead for a long time. Not only that, but neither Moses nor his audience read or spoke English. Uh, so you and I were not a part of the original group that Moses wrote for. That group was the people of Israel. Uh, their, their parents had followed Moses out of Egypt, and now they were ready to tread the verge of Jordan. Uh, we should guess that God had Moses write uh, what he wrote, with the needs of these people, first of all, in mind. So let me begin, then, in thinking about reading in context by stating the obvious. We should read these chapters uh, in Genesis like anything else in their proper context. But what does that mean? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 form the front end of Genesis 1 through 11, which is the front end of the whole book of Genesis, which is the front end of the whole of the five books of Moses. Now, the books of Moses, called the Pentateuch, serve as a kind of constitution for Israel. Israel are to be God's people, the people that he chose so that through them he could bless the whole world. And this constitution comes in the form of a continuous narrative. The narrative gave, gave to ancient Israel a big story. It explained who they were and why they were in the world. And it invited them to take their place in the story as it plays out from here. For Christians, it's a part of our big story as well. So Genesis as a whole sets the stage for Israel's big story. 
It addresses people about to follow Joshua across the Jordan River, making sure that they really believe themselves to be the proper heirs of Abraham, the person that God promised the land to. Genesis 1 through 11 gives us the front end to this big story. Now, other people in Israel's neighborhood had their own stories about where people came from, what the gods could do for you if you honored them properly. Well, the biblical front end aims to tell these things the right way to make sure that God's people really get it. Namely, it gives you a good creation marred by human fall into rebellion where God is active to redeem humankind and all that they affect and a creation which God will bring into final judgment and complete fruition. So if we tell it this way, it's obviously not simply a local tale dealing with a limited group of people. It tells the big story of the whole world. My friend J.I. Packer describes the uh, literary style of Genesis 1 through 11 this way. He speaks of the poetic prose mode of narration in Genesis 1 through 11 with its pictorial, imaginative, quasi-liturgical phraseology, its paucity of mere information, and its drumbeat formulae. And he actually puts that in contrast uh, to the ordinary narrative prose mode of the rest of Genesis. He sees a distinction between the style of Genesis 1 through 11 and the style of Genesis 12 through 50. Uh, and uh, speaking as a specialist in Genesis, I totally agree. I just wish I had his gift for putting things so punchily. Uh, he's also, uh, Packer's also clear that uh, Moses means those narratives to be understood as space-time history, although told in his chosen incantatory poetic way. So he's not drawing a, a, a distinction or a contrast between telling true events and the incantatory and poetic means of telling these things. Now, there are two passages in the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2. They are Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, uh, what we think of as the, the big picture creation story. And then there's Genesis 2, verses 4 through 25. Uh, and the uh, uh, Genesis 2-4 begins with the words, these are the generations uh, of the heavens and the earth, and that term, these are the generations, usually begins a new section in Genesis. But of course, the question is, well, okay, what do we do with these two passages? Do we take them as two complementary or even competing creation stories, or do we do what uh, some have done, namely think of the events of Genesis 2 as following those of Genesis 1? Well, the traditional way of reading Genesis 1 and 2 takes Genesis 2 as amplifying the sixth day of Genesis, uh, of Genesis 1. That is to say, it tells us more about how God went about creating humankind in his image, male and female. Well, there's lots to be said in favor of this way of reading. I have to be concise, however. You can actually see uh, this in the way that Jesus uh, ties the two passages together in Matthew 19, verses 4 and 5. He ties Genesis 1.27 together with Genesis 2.24. Uh, when Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning male and made them male and female, Genesis 1.27, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2.24. Uh, so uh, my uh, impulse is to follow Jesus wherever he leads, and so I, I will do so in the way that I read these two passages together. That, that's in, sorry, that's intended to be a little bit of humor. I'm not, um, 
uh, please don't, please don't uh, take me as having said anything that I didn't really say. So, but that tradition of, uh, that, I mean, it's actually a very old tradition of reading. You'll find it in Jewish sources, rabbinic so sources, and so forth. That of uh, taking Genesis 2 as an amplification of Genesis 1 uh, makes good sense. In fact, it makes perfect sense. And it will help us immensely, as we'll see in a moment. So here's where I'm going to start to get a little bit more controversial. But uh, I want to face head on uh, what just what we might mean by talking about a natural or plain reading of the text. Obviously, natural for whom? I mean, you and I weren't there, okay? We've got to remember that. Uh, now, John Walton has been invoked, and there's lots of subjects on which I disagree uh, with uh, Dr. Walton, but uh, he has a, a little saying that I think uh, puts everything perfectly. Namely, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. Or you can put it the other way around. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. So it's, it's very important for us to keep that in mind. Now, the most obvious thing about Genesis 1 is the seven days pattern, marked off by the refrain, and there was evening and there was morning, the first, second, third, fourth, up to the sixth day. Interestingly enough, there is no refrain on the seventh day. Well, the pattern here shows God going about his work week, doing special labor on the six days, and then having a rest on the seventh. Whatever we do with the passage, we'd better make sure we account for that. Well, can we say when each day begins? Yes, as a matter of fact, we can. If you look at uh, verses 5 and 6, so the end of the first day and the beginning of the second day. After the first day, uh, you know, the evening followed by morning, the first day, we read in verse 6, and God said. We see the same thing at the beginning of each of the other days. So God begins each workday by saying something. That expression, and God said, begins each of the days. And he, and he gives a command, let something happen, and the command is fulfilled. Uh, that's why, as a matter of fact, day seven is different from the other days. It doesn't work that way because the Sabbath is not a workday. Well, that, as a matter of fact, tells us that the first day in this account begins at Genesis 1 and verse 3, where God expresses his first command. In other words, God's initial act of creating all there is took place sometime before the first day began. Uh, and we don't know how long before. And when the first day began, the earth was, as Genesis 1-2 tells us, without form and void, which means that it was not yet ready for human beings to live in it. Well, let's keep track of this point because we're going to come back to it in a moment. Now, the high point of this account is in Genesis 1 and verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created, them, created him. Male and female, he created them. Well, the author is telling us that he wants us to see the making of the first human beings as the key to all the action here. In fact, we're to think of everything in terms of its relationship to human life. Even the lights in the sky. In, uh, on the fourth day of uh, verse 14, mark off the seasons and the days and the years. Well, in Hebrew, those are events in the liturgical calendar so that humans can worship God according to the proper cycle. And as a matter of fact, even though Israel had their liturgical calendar, which isn't the same as ours, we still have something like it. Uh, even the most anti-liturgical churches still meet on Sunday, but we also, most of us, recognize Christmas and Easter and maybe other days as well. Well, there's a few things in this passage that we ought to notice. Uh, you can see that hardly anything here gets its proper or ordinary name, the only exceptions being God and man. 
Uh, the expanse, or canopy as some want to take it in, in uh, verse 4, is a poetical name for the sky used elsewhere in the Old Testament, like in the Psalms and in Daniel. The vegetation comes in small varieties, plants yielding seed, and large ones, fruit trees. The sun and the moon are the greater and the lesser lights. You have swarms of living creatures in the waters. You have the birds or flying creatures, uh, would be my preferred translation of that, in the sky. And on land you have livestock, which would be animals that you can tame for farm use. You have uh, creeping things, the little creepy crawlies, whether they be snakes or lizards or spiders. And then you have uh, beasts of the earth, which would be wild animals. Some of them are game animals, some of them are large predators. Uh, and the description as a whole, however, is very, very broad stroke and suggestive rather than detailed. Besides that, you're aware that it tells us that the trees have their seeds in them, each according to its kind. And God made the animals of the water and the land according to their kinds. Now, the word kind is not the same as species. It isn't, isn't even about the question of whether one kind can turn into another. Again, we come back to the nomadic shepherds who first heard this uh, in a service of public worship. They already knew how you get more sheep. Uh, you breed them from your sheep, and you don't try to mix a camel into the bloodline. Uh, you know, it's not going to work. Um, if you want to grow barley, you plant barley seeds and not oats. Jesus tells a parable in which a guy recognizes that somebody has planted other seeds in his field. The, uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares, based on the fact that tares are growing up in amongst the wheat, and he knows what he planted. So the point, uh, it, again, is not about the question of changes in the kinds. That's, that's a separate issue, but it's not a question that's addressed here. Rather, is that all of this comes from God, and whatever processes God did or did not use to bring that about are God's processes. That's what people are invited to confess. Now, if we take all of these factors together, you have this quasi-liturgical recounting of God's achievements in creation. You have this highly patterned presentation of the days, beginning with, and God said, and ending with evening followed by morning. You have the lack of normal names for the things mentioned, together with this rhetorically high or poetical term, expanse. You have this elusive reference to the sun and the moon. You have the, the very broad stroke taxonomies for plants and animals. All of these combine these with the unique events and with God's own appreciation for his work, he keeps seeing it, that it's good, and then his rest on the Sabbath, all of this give the passage a high or exalted feel, something we don't encounter in other narratives in the Bible. Coming back to uh, Packer, as he said, uh, for adequate exposition of Genesis 1 through 11, we must appreciate its quasi-poetic techniques of presentation. So, Sum it up here. Uh, the six days are not necessarily the first actual days of the universe, not even necessarily the first six days of the earth itself. They're the days during which God set up the earth as the ideal place for human beings to live, to love God, to serve one another, to rule the world with wisdom and goodwill. Uh-oh, what do we make about those days then? Can we say a little bit more about uh, these days? Are these the kind of days that you and I are used to? And do they follow one another in sequence? Well, the key comes from minding the most obvious feature of this passage, namely the refrain. After each day, we find evening and then morning, the nth day. The order of words makes all the difference in the world. 
This is why the doctrine of plenary inspiration uh, needs to be brought uh, in, into uh, play here. It's evening followed by morning. Well, there's only one thing that that can be in, in uh, that culture, and that's, those are the bookends of the nighttime. In that culture, you work during the daylight, say, caring for your animals or tilling your field, and then you knocked off in the evening and you rested during the night. The next morning, you're ready to start all over again, and you do this for six days, and then comes the Sabbath, where the whole day is given over to resting. Now, Israel has been introduced to the Sabbath back in Exodus 16. So the, the audience of Genesis is familiar with this pattern. So God's activity of preparing the earth as the right kind of place for humans to live is presented to us like an Israelite work week. You'll notice that on the seventh day, God rests. And in Exodus 31:17, it even says that on God's Sabbath, he rested and was refreshed. Now, any Israelite, when he read those words or heard those words read aloud, would say, yeah, I know what that's like. And, and then he'd say, wait, 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 wait a second. God doesn't get tired. What do those words mean? Uh, we're seeing then that in this passage, God's creation activity is presented to us by way of analogy. That is to say, it's like human rest and work in some ways. But, of course, that means that it's unlike human rest and work in other ways. All right, so what about length of time? Well, we've, we've already noticed that the seventh day has no refrain. And the simplest explanation for that is because it doesn't end. As early as the second century BC, uh, Jews were reading this as telling us that God rested from his work of preparing the world for mankind, and he is still resting. In conventional theology, he's finished the work of creation and he's begun the work of providence, of maintaining his creation. It looks like Jesus thought of uh, the, uh, the creation Sabbath that way. In John 5, 17, when Jesus was condemned for healing on, the Sabbath, uh, on a Sabbath day, he says, my father's working until now, and I'm working too. The point is, is that God, his father, is working on the creation Sabbath, doing good things on the creation Sabbath, and Jesus is imitating his father. That is, even though it's God's Sabbath, he's still working for the benefit of human beings. And that justifies Jesus in doing good. Hebrews 4 says that Christian believers have entered God's Sabbath rest, a rest that began in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. That's, that, that's the argument in Hebrews 4. Well, that makes sense only if God is still enjoying that same Sabbath, which was a point that was clear to Augustine in the 5th century, that God has sanctified it to an everlasting continuance, as Augustine put it. So we conclude that the seventh day is not an ordinary day. What about the others then? Well, you know, if we read just Genesis uh, 1, 1 to 2, 3, we would say that, well, it could be ordinary days, it could be unusual days, but we don't stop there. We go on to Genesis 2. I told you we, we needed to, uh, particularly Genesis 2, 4 through 7. Now, I've uh, printed for you in the handout the ESV, but the uh, Christian Standard Bible is, is uh, very similar on the points that I'm making here, where you have, uh, starting in verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not uh, caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The idea is that in some particular region, it's called the land here, uh, at a particular time of year, that time that 
when the mist was rising, which in that climate is at the end of the dry season, before it's begun to rain. The rain clouds were beginning to rise. Well, that's when God formed the man. In other words, if we read Genesis 1 and 2 together, we can, uh, we're, we're going to see how chapter 2 fills out details of the sixth day. But notice that this actually tells us why. Uh, no bush or small plant had yet sprung up. It was because the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. That is to say, in that particular region. It does not say anything about God not having made the plants. So we shouldn't confuse this with the third day of Genesis 1. Rather, you need to think of the climate in that part of the world where it rains in the winter and it stops raining sometime around Easter. It doesn't rain again until sometime in the fall. And by the end of the summer, everything is brown and dry. And then when the rains begin, it starts greening up. Well, for this to be the reason that the plants had not grown, that must mean that this climate cycle that I've just described has been in effect for at least a year, if not longer. My point is that a week that is a year or longer is not an ordinary week. Well, all of this comes together to show that the best reading of the days is what Hermann Bavink called God's work days. Uh, do the, uh, does the passage have any concern with our questions of how old the earth might be? Well, I just don't think so. After all, we've already noticed that the, these days are not necessarily the first six days of the universe, and not even necessarily the first day, six days of the earth itself. And if there are God's work days, which are analogous to human work days, then exactly how long they were, or exactly how the activities might match what we find in the fossils, is just not important. Now, let, let me just uh, say a word to head off misunderstanding. I've not, off, I've not suggested a different meaning of the word day. The way analogies work is they depend upon your, uh, your experience of the thing that's designated, and they apply it to God. When you talk about God's hand, or God's arm, or God's eyes, you're not inventing a new meaning for those words. And so I'm not, I'm not asking you to think of a new meaning for the word day. Now, uh, very briefly, how much time do I have left? Sorry? Okay. I'm okay. Oh, I'm okay and you're okay. This, this is terrific. Okay. <laughs> so, um, the book of Genesis, let me uh, talk briefly about the genealogies then. The book of Genesis traces the ancestry of humankind and thus of Israel from the first human family whose disobedience brought about such catastrophic results as jealousy and murder, polygamy, boastful pride and vengefulness. And that's all in Genesis 4, for crying out loud. Well, the genealogy in Genesis 5 goes from Adam, if you take Genesis 5 and 11 together, goes from Adam right the way through to Abram, with an interruption in the middle for the story of Noah and the Great Flood. The main sections of the genealogy, as I say, are from Genesis 5, that whole chapter, and then a section of Genesis 11. Now these lists give lifespans for the figures mentioned. They also say how old the patriarch was when he fathered or begat the next person in the list. So let's just add up the numbers to get how many years from Adam to Abram, right? Well, hang on, or as uh, the Duke would say, whoa, slow down there, Pilgrim. Um, uh, before we agree to do that, uh, we, we need to be sure that this was the kind of uh, information that the Genesis account aims to give. And our study of Genesis 1 and 2 should have made us cautious on that point. I'm not going to go into question, the question of what do we make of the lifespans of the patriarchs. I'll notice rather that both genealogies list 10 generations uh, from the beginning to the end. 
Now, 10 is an aesthetically pleasing number. Uh, and it invites us not to worry about whether the genealogy intends to cover every generation from Adam to Noah. As a matter of fact, Matthew's gospel does the same sort of thing. Uh, uh, you have uh, the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word fathered uh, to uh, move the storyline along, and he skips generations in order to, uh, to give us three sets of 14 generations each. Now, any reader of Matthew's gospel actually could have checked Matthew's lists against the Old Testament and the Second Temple sources, and we can suppose that um, including an exhaustive list was not the purposes of genealogies like that in the opening of Matthew's gospel. Same way in Genesis. So genealogies in this context don't try to get every single generation in, and the verb to father uh, can simply mean to father the ancestor of someone. The genealogies do two things uh, in Genesis. First of all, they establish a clear line of descent, as I said, from Adam to Abram. That's very important theologically for the meaning of the book of Genesis. We can go into that later. But uh, they also function, as it were, to hit a fast-forward button, uh, to move the storyline ahead to the, the episode that the author wants to talk about some more. Uh, the, uh, now, the matter of animal death and natural evil, uh, and I think we'll, I'll save a lot of this for the conversation when it comes to the matter of Romans chapter 8, but many suppose that according to Genesis, no death occurred in God's good creation until the first human sin. Uh, this, they say, fits with a short timeline from creation to fall, and, then, and that gives you a recent creation of the earth and its creatures. The trouble with this, that the Genesis account, and Romans as well, is concerned with human death. Uh, and further, the death in view in Genesis is what we can call relational or spiritual death, which is how Calvin read it. Uh, and that's exactly what happens when our first parents disobey in Genesis 3. Uh, they try to hide from the bushes, try to hide in the bushes from God. Like, that's really a brilliant move, right? I mean, that's going to work. Uh, that you, you find them uh, blaming each other uh, and so forth. Uh, so they have, in fact, died. Uh, just as God said they would. The Bible doesn't present animal death as a consequence of the fall, and the best evidence for that comes from Psalm 104, which celebrates the way that the creation still works according to the Creator's plan. The blemish, the thing that spoils the whole, is at the, in the very end of the psalm. It's the presence of human sinners in verse 35, and the psalm prays for them to be removed. In this scheme, the young lions get their food from God. Uh, and you know what young lions eat, um, or you, you watch the animal planet, you know. Uh, uh, and, and there are other passages where you have God supplying food for the ravens, for the falcons, and so forth. God cares for these animals by supplying the food that they need. As I say, we could talk about Romans 8 uh, later and uh, discuss that in more detail if we need to. I want to bring this to a close by uh, simply giving you a summary of what I take to be the biblical teaching, because nobody here is moving, but I, so I don't know how much time I have or don't have. He's um, three or four minutes, oh, three or four, wow. Uh, uh, well then, um, so uh, I, I would say something about science, but I, I'm gonna leave that to the, the conversation. I, I, I want to come back on the matter of suspicion towards science. I think that that's um, something we need to talk about. But I don't want to stop by talking about uh, uh, what the passage doesn't say. 
I'm, I'm concerned that, that each of us aim to be what you can call a virtuous reader, one who tries at all times to cooperate with the biblical text. Uh, and that's what we're talking about here. What does cooperation really look like? Well, the purpose of setting out uh, the, the pattern of God's work as six days followed by a Sabbath is to give us a pattern for the ideal human being. The ideal human life is that which imitates God. The Sabbath commandment describes a work week for Israel that follows God's work week. It's a gift of God's love rather than a burden. Um, and that's why the rest, the work and the rest and the days in the fourth commandment I take to be analogous to God's. You'll notice that uh, the creation story begins with God creating everything. There's debate about whether that verse uh, is the very first action of the creation of everything or uh, a summary of the whole passage. I'm just going to tell you my view is that I think it's the very first action and leave it uh, for that. In this shaping, things happen because God says things. The matter in the universe does not exist on its own. Any uh, theory that, that suggests that it does uh, is uh, falsified uh, by its contrast with the Bible, but also really with faithful science. It doesn't organize itself. That organization comes in obedience to God's command. That's not setting up a scientific theory for us as such, but you know, if we indwell the story, we're just not going to be surprised if we find instances of what we can call design in the world that God made. So uh, we can say that God made all things, and, and I'm riffing really off of the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, and maybe I'm uh, gilding the lily there because they've got four things and I've got six that uh, the, creation, the doctrine of creation tells us. God made all things from nothing, which means that God and only God is self-sufficient. The world depends on him. He doesn't depend on it. He made it by the word of his power, which means that when God wanted, to, wanted something to be a certain way, he spoke a word, and that's just the way that it was. There's no conflict here, no resistance to overcome. There is obedience to God's command. He made all things in the space of six days using the pattern of the human work week. God shows us how the ideal human laborer does his work and takes his rest. All very good. Good means it deserves our admiration because it suits just what God wants. That's what the creation was like at the first, and as a matter of fact, according to the Apostle Paul, it's still like that. Everything created by God is good, he says in 1 Timothy 4. He made all things so that it bears his imprint. The whole creation displays to all of us something of what God is like. It helps us to know and to worship, worship him. And then finally, he made the creation as the right kind of place in which you and I live our story. Here's how the story got underway. The first and most fundamental thing about you and I and each person in this room and each person that you will meet is that we are creatures. Uh, creatures who, uh, about whom God is fundamentally interested uh, and towards whom God is fundamentally well disposed. The intrusion of sin into our lives is a horrible distortion of our creaturehood. And the function of redemption is to restore our createdness to its proper functioning, not simply in our individual lives, but also in our community lives and in relation to this world that God loves and owns because he made. Thank you very much.
All right, we are uh, moving into stage two, or, or disposing of stage one, I should say. Uh, I can tell already as moderator, I'm losing a little bit of control of these guys. As the, they asked what time it was, four people answered. I, I figure with all the pastors here, we have about 200 moderators. So <laughs> we should be fine here to get through in the next four hours or so. Uh, all right. Well, without further ado, I'd like to invite uh, both our participants to come forward here, and uh, feel free to have a seat for a moment. No, I think I'm fine. Oh, yeah, I'll take one if there's an extra. We have uh, two opening statements that gave us two, I think, pretty clear interpretations of the biblical data. And uh, what I'd like to do is begin by just reviewing a little bit about what the textual findings or textual facts are, and then invite our, uh, our uh, participants here to talk about going from those kinds of facts to an interpretation. And then how do they arrive at how What kind of rationale do they have for that? So one of the things, I'm using uh, John Lennox's book, Seven Days That Divide the World, uh, and just a couple of facts here, or textual findings, and then, and again, invite uh, Dr. Moeller, then maybe... Uh, Dr. Collins to, to speak to these. One I think we can agree on, says John Lennox, is that there's a tripartite structure. We have Genesis 1, 1 and 2, which is the initial creation of the heavens and earth. We have Genesis uh, 1, 3 to 2, 1, which has the six days of creation. And then we have Genesis 2, 2 to 3, which God rests, or the Sabbath. We have Genesis 1 depicting God as a creative craftsman, working going about his work week in a typical uh, sort of uh, godlike uh, uh, way. We're taking rest each night as would any competent workman. Yet God's work week seems to be very different than human work week. He's actually creating stuff. It's a one-time event. Um, he takes rest, but he doesn't really need to take rest, of course, because he is God. And so whatever's happening on that uh, work week of God's, it's uniquely divine. Thirdly, the word day, and uh, John Lennox points out that the word day actually has four different meanings in Genesis 1 and 2. The first time we see it is in Genesis 1-5, where the day means approximately 12 hours, where it says God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Later in Genesis 1-5, the word day is in relationship to evening and morning, which seems to indicate a 24-hour period, and that happens a number of times throughout Genesis. The next unique occurrence of the word day is in day seven, where it does not have evening and morning, and it seems to indicate a longer period of time. And then we see the word day again in Genesis 2, 4, where it means something like back in the day, as one might say, hey, back in my day. So it means an, a, a period of time that goes, that's sometime in the past. It's probably longer than a 24-hour period, but it's not necessarily a very long period of time. So we have at least four of those uh, definitions of, uh, of day at work in Genesis. Although many of our translations will use the definite article at the beginning of each day for all the days of creation, it's only present in the Hebrew on day 6 and 7. That is, days 1 and 5 have no definite article. So I, I'm, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I don't, I don't think these uh, gentlemen are professing to, to, to actually, you know, um, have the corner on this market. But there is some texture to the text. And so what I like to do is just offer that up as an initial assessment. Where, how do you go from the textual texture there 
to your interpretation of the text. I guess I'm a little lost at the moment. Are you stipulating John Lennox's understanding? He, he's understanding these merely as observations of what the text contains. No interpretation involved there. Uh, How do we I don't move? believe that's at all true, just to be honest. I mean, okay. you've, you've, you've brought a third interpretive scheme into this, uh, which is interesting, but I'm not sure exactly how to respond to it in terms of the question of the debate. Um, I, I think, again, a plain sense reading of Genesis 1, put in the context of biblical theology in a text like Exodus 20, along with the others I mentioned, would indicate that the six days of creation, per se, are understood naturally as 24-hour days. The question has to do is, does the Bible speak definitively to the age of the earth? Again, I think we have to be careful what we mean by definitively. I don't have a number of years for you. But I think the natural reading of the text in the context and the flow of biblical history would point back to the fact that the context, the word yom there, the context is fairly easy to understand and appears to be very foundational for how later references in Scripture, in the Pentateuch in particular, uh, understand uh, the meaning of the word day. We understand, of course, it is the kind of uh, majestic prose we're talking about here. We, uh, I, I also understand and, uh, and affirm that there is a literary consideration to be brought into this. It's just none of those arguments for me come close to convincing me that one should abandon the, the, the understanding of those six days of creation as 24-hour days. Right. Well, so uh, to, to come back to your, your question of, of what uh, Dr. Lennox is, is observing, so, uh, for example, you take the, the definite article or lack of definite article until you get to the sixth day. And actually, there's even, it's, even, it's Yom HaShishi, which is even a little bit, you would have expected high Yom HaShishi. Um, so it's, but um, once, uh, once you appreciate the style as exalted prose, then, then you're less troubled by those things. What, I mean, what happens with any particular text is, is you're making a judgment as to which features of it are the ones that stand out and demand your attention, and which are the ones that, I guess that's just, you know, style. Um, you know, style in sort of a broad sense. Um, uh, but but I, would, I would say the overall uh, flavor of the narrative is, as exalted prose is, is what ex invites someone to, to delve um, beneath the surface, so that what seems to lie on the surface, namely the days, we're, we're invited to, uh, be because it's, well, to use Packer's term, quasi-poetic, um, then, then we're, well, there's more here than that. Um, so that's, that, that's the idea. Hmm. Um, and I think, we, I, I, I think I learn a great deal from that kind of literary analysis. Uh, I, I learn a great deal about reading scripture, even from the framework theorists uh, and, and from many others. The literary considerations are not irrelevant to understanding the scripture faithfully, preaching it, and teaching it. Uh, but none of that it convinces me to forego the, uh, the normal 24-hour day structure. Excellent. Well, one, of, one of the things I heard you mention was about the three-tiered importance of certain, mm -hmm. certain doc, theological doctrines. That this one is really, on a, you know, all things being equal, a, a lower-level one, but it's becoming more important as cultural influences and so forth press themselves upon the Christian faith. Um, in particular, in some of your writing, you've talked about uh, evolution, evolutionism, mm -hmm. and you say here uh, on one of your websites, you say, if evolution is true, then the entire narrative of the Bible has to be revised and reinterpreted. 
The evolutionary account is not only incompatible with any historical affirmation of Genesis, but it is also incompatible with the claim that all humanity is descended from Adam and the claim that Adam, in Adam all humanity fell into sin and guilt and so forth. I think a lot of us in this room, at least I, I, I sense the profundity of this, that is I understand your concern for theological fidelity, that there is this movement, let's call it evolutionism, that is pressing non-Christian assumptions upon us, culturally and otherwise. Uh, if one gives an inch, you feel like you're going to end up giving a mile to these, to these kinds of positions. I also understand um, that these positions are based upon utter inflexibility, overextension. They're trying to say too much with scientific assumptions. I think a lot of us would agree with, uh, with that. I know every time I, I, I hear evolution presented and it doesn't have theory in any way associated with it, as though it's an accepted fact in all the things that are said, I get, I get very uncomfortable. And I, and I think a lot of what your theological work has shown us is that we need to give pushback to this. But here's my question. Um, is the young earth position, in a sense, equally rigid in what it attempts to explain? In a sense, it explains too much. Too much of that textual sort of texture disappears so that the same claim that is made against evolutionary theory of being heavy-handed about how they observed the world could be put back toward a young earth creationist, and you're similarly heavy-handed in how you deal with the text. Well, I guess if I were making a critique of a young earth position, I would make that argument. The problem is, what exactly would compromise look like here? Eight billion years old? Uh, in other words, there's, it, 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 we're looking at two diametrically different ways of looking at the world and potentially the text as well. But uh, I think there's no question that, that one of the problems here is the definition of terms. For example, I'm constantly in the media told by people, look, the Roman Catholic Church has made peace with evolution. That's intellectual dishonesty. The official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church today, on February the 1st, 2017, is that evolution is compatible with the Christian faith and with biblical truth and can be accepted by faithful Catholics insofar as it does not violate the historical existence of Adam and Eve and the, the, the fact that every single human being is descended by them. You will not find a tenured scientist that holds to the consensus view of evolution in the modern academy who believes anything like that, including the people who are held up as Roman Catholic evolutionists. Um, the, the modern evolutionary worldview is fairly easy to understand, and it's very dogmatic. The discussions at them, as, as the evolutionists say, at the high table of Darwin, they're about the, the particular mechanisms. But the, the fact is, is that the, the absolute consensus evolutionary theory is that it's incompatible with any external design, designer, and, uh, and so you have people who are, are seeking now, because the issues are so clear, the theistic evolutionists, they too hold a pretty well-defined position now. If they're writing about it and thinking about it, they've got to reject Adam and Eve as biological parents, even if they're claiming some kind of divine influence. They then have to deny the fall as an historic event with the consequences of which the New Testament speaks. And, uh, and, and so you, you, there's where the, the kerygma is at stake. That's where you lose the gospel. Therefore, Christianity means something else. And frankly, most of them are honest enough to have made this point long before I arrive on the scene to make it. Uh, their rendering of Christianity bears virtually no resemblance whatsoever and cannot, unless they're operating in two planes in which their faith is on one plane 
with no accountability to their cosmology or their cosmologies that are plain unaccountable to their, to their faith. I don't think we want to do that. I think this is one of the errors of those I prize and lionize in evangelical history, the Princetonians. They were so convinced, some of them, they were so convinced of the power of empirical science, they were certain that eventually science would come back to affirm every truth of Scripture. It didn't turn out that way. And uh, as a matter of fact, Warfield, for example, lived long enough to fully understand that. And, uh, and arguably Hodge, by the way, did as well. But the point is that uh, everyone can affirm, I will affirm evolution insofar as it doesn't violate anything revealed in Scripture. That doesn't fit anything called evolution in the modern academy, which is the problem with the, the apologetics involved here. I don't see what is gained by affirming an old earth unless you're going, because modern evolutionary theory, the modern cosmology, the modern scientific consensus doesn't just say that the world is old. It also says that human beings are not the product of special creation and that, uh, that it's certainly impossible. Francis Collins, for instance, head of the National Institutes of Health, headed the Human Genome Project, just says point blank, you can't possibly affirm, given the evidence, uh, the human beings came from one parentage. Uh, it had to come from somewhere else. So I'm thankful that anyone affirms the historical Adam and the historical fall. But let's be candid. You still got to explain somehow how Adam appears and whether or not he is the father of the whole human race. Well, but ha hang on, hang on. Um, there, there's, there's no... Whoa, Pilgrim, not so fast. All right. Seriously. Okay, first of all, science uh, with a capital S is, uh, is um, that's, uh, the, the phenomenon is you have an abstract noun functioning as if, as if it's an actual thing. There are sciences, uh, and actually science doesn't tell us anything scientists do. So we must be very clear on that point. Further, the, the different sciences are in principle separable. So if, if you think about astronomy and cosmology, if you think about geology, now they, they have overlaps and so forth, you think about large uh, swaths of biology as well, um, the uh, chemistry, physics, and so forth. E each of them is, is in principle separable. Okay, that, that's, so that's the uh, one point. The second point is we must make a distinction between what the sciences legitimately tell us and, and, what, and what the spokespersons whom I wish would shut up, uh, uh, tell us. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, you, you mentioned a tenured, professor, tenured professors of biology. Well, I'm not going to give out a name because I could endanger him, but, but I've actually spoken with a tenured professor at a world-class uh, East Coast research university who's the chairman of the evolutionary biology department who uh, is very clear on this point that um, if you take a Richard Dawkins or whatever, um, that, that, that that person is actually far more dangerous, uh, far more of a threat to the study of biology than, than anything that, that uh, e even the young earth creationists pose because, because he actually sullies the, uh, the very practice of, of the biological discipline. He's also told me that, that, that he has no interest in, in, um, in having things posed in such a way as they're a threat to the faith. Interestingly enough, there are two uh, educators um, associations for biology teachers uh, in the United States. There's the National Association of Biology Te Teachers and there's the uh, National Science Teachers Association. Well, one of them uh, uh, sets out biology and evolutionary biology in a way that is, that is consistent with what you said, so that it makes it a purely naturalistic story right the way through from the beginning to the end 
Uh, and not, not only as a Christian, but anybody interested in truth, I, I would have to reject that. that, that is, that's an absurdity to take that as the a priori. However, the other one says that in evolutionary biology, we don't know uh, where, where these things come from, and it's not a precondition for knowing. Uh, so that um, uh, they, they've told me that, that I mean, the, again, this particular chairman has told me that in, in terms of talking about where humankind came from, that's a very different uh, kind of endeavor. So I, I just, I, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to be, uh, I, I want us to make distinctions that, that need to be made here between, you know, what, what you know, when, when I spoke of overstepping our bounds, that there are certain, there are places clearly where people in the sciences overstep their bounds, and that's that's a sociological issue, that's a cultural issue. We, if you, if a person comes to you in a white lab coat, you assume uh, a level of authority, you attribute authority to that person, and so forth. Um, and and so that's you know that that's a, a problem, but but, um, but but to replace that assumption of authority with with um, with a blanket suspicion, I, I think is is not is not really addressing the issue. Uh, what what we need is is a greater appreciation for what's going on, a greater appreciation for what they have a right to say and what they don't have a right to say. Um, I mean, I, I would never let a biologist talk to me, uh, uh, dictate to me the ethics of animal experimentation. As a biologist, they don't have a right to, to say that. That supersedes my right to tell them not to do that. Um, you know, so uh, they, 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 they are experts in their particular discipline, and when they stay to their discipline, I, I think they're worthy of, of, a, of um, a, at least a, an attentive ear, not, not, not in every case respect, but that's, you take that on a case-by-case -case basis. Can we follow this a minute? Absolutely. Yeah, because this is really interesting to me, and I, I appreciate um, the clarifications you bring. And I, I would simply say, the, the problem as I see it, is that if you take biology just on its own terms, it, it, it appears to be, well, you can't say universal, although if a scientist can't be named, and I believe absolutely what you're telling me, that right. kind of proves the point of the dominant scientific <clears throat> establishment and its worldview. But if you take modern biology, I have to assume that Francis Collins, and I read more widely than Francis Collins, but Francis Collins is, was the head of the Human Genome Project, and he says, look, it's an absolute consensus in modern biology that human beings, in terms of their genetic genomic structure, are incompatible with an original pair of parents. Now, let's assume that their worldview is, uh, is not necessarily one in which they wake up thinking, how can I reject Genesis? or the kerygma, but what are we to do with that? Uh, that and that, that's, that's a fair question. <clears throat> I mean, and uh, it's, consensus is a funny thing in the sciences. It's become politicized, uh, which, which, I mean, that's destructive of the sciences um, in general. Um, and, um, you know, the, the, and, you know, I sort of, uh, in a jocular way, said I won't name that guy. Because, I mean, you know, it's hard to get funding from the government, it might even get harder, you know, in, in the new administration and so forth. And, and it is true that, that the, the people with the loudest mouths are, are the ones who, who shout naturalism at us. So, um, and they, they seem to be the people who control the purse strings. So, I mean, that's, that seems to be a social phenomenon. But, but I, what I'm saying is that's different from the science. Um, so the, the, um, the, the glory of science is that, that, that people advocate a position and then dare you to disprove it. 
Uh, and, and so what's, you know, what's being politicized is that, that certain positions are being enshrined as unassailable. Uh, and so that's, that, I, that, I think, is the problem. Uh, and so it, it is the case that under, I mean, I wish, I've, I've actually told people in that particular theistic evolutionary camp, I wish that I could hear you say, in the current thinking about biology, we can't see how this works. That, that would be the honest way of saying things. But the, the trouble is, is that people trained in the sciences are not trained in saying things carefully. Um, good. This, listen, I, I, I went to MIT, okay? The, the philosopher, you don't want that person in your lab uh, because he's probably going to blow it up. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very familiar with, with, with how these things work. But that's, that's, again, that's not an apologetic issue. It's not a scientific issue. It's, it's a sociological issue. Uh, and and as, a matter of, as a matter of fact, we can minister to our culture, which, which is what I hope everybody wants to do, by, by uh, being the advocates of good critical thinking and of carefully saying things. Uh, what, what you have, say, uh, from uh, Francis Collins, who, so far as I know, is no kin of mine. Um, so so you, you, just in case you're tempted to paint me with that brush. Um, but, but what you have is an inference. Uh, you, you, there's a structure by which you've made this inference. Uh, and yeah, you're assuming certain things are true. Uh, as a matter of fact, in this particular inference, there are various math mathematical features that, that are involved uh, where, where each step is subject to question. Uh, and, and I would wish that, that I could hear you talk honestly about, uh, about this. Now, actually, I do know people in the theistic evolutionary camp who do talk that way. Uh, but unfortunately, they're not the ones who get the most visibility. That, that's, that's a misfortune, but that's... Uh, again, that's not a, a problem with the view as such. It's a problem, again, with, you know, who gets to the microphone. Yeah. Look, we're separating the sciences, which, uh, at least conceptually, should be possible. Um, it appears to me that a lot of the people who argue for an old earth are saying, I'm going to accept the geology and deny the biology, at least in terms of the consensus view. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but you mentioned the biologists operating on the basis of certain presuppositions in which you can back it. I mean, I would say the geologists are too. And, and uniformitarianism is the most important of these. That's just baked into the cake there. Um, in, in terms of, so in a friendly way, I was simply tell you, I'm about to tell you what I think is the worst problem that an old earth uh, person holds. And I'm, I'm happy for you to tell, you, tell me what you think is the biggest problem with, uh, with my position. Um, I think the, de the development of this debate, which really began kind of over geology, is now more properly over theology. And it's over Adam. And, uh, and, and the historical Adam, going back to not only the federal head in terms of theology, but also understanding him as, as uh, the biological ancestor of the entire race. And I'm still trying to figure out how someone who holds to an old universe position can actually end up with the special creation of Adam and Eve. Um, because that narrative that is accepted includes pre-existing hominids and, uh, and, and all kinds of things that make it very difficult for me to figure out how in the world, other than by arbitrary force of will, and by the way, where that is necessary, I'm for that, in other words, I'm thankful to find anyone who affirms the historical Adam, even if I find them to have done so uh, less consistently, I'm, I'm happy because that's kerygma, that's gospel. 
But I just don't know how long this can be held. You have Derek Kidner, uh, even some others, like John Stott, suggesting maybe God just adopted, you have an adoptionistic anthropology, maybe God right. just adopted a primal pair of pre-existing hominids and ensouled them, uh, thus the imago dei. Hey, help me here. Yeah. Well, I, I, so I, I, in order to, to follow your instructions about briefness of an answer, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'm going to save the question of uniformitarianism for a, a later discussion. Please bring, yeah. bring that back, because I, I think that, needs to, that we need to have a discussion about that. So um, the, um, the answer is that the traditional progressive creationists, as they're called, um, all hold to the miraculous formation of Adam directly from the dirt. I mean, that's, that's a traditional mm -hmm. view. Uh, that's represented, say, by reasons to believe, but by lots and mm -hmm. lots of other people. I, I could give you a list of names. Uh, that, that's, that's a very, very conventional perspective. And so there you have, uh, you have that concern. Now, um, uh, Stott's perspective, I think, is, is unfortunate. Um, I, I think he, do, he, um, he didn't really think through what are the consequences of that. And, and, I've, and, and um, so when someone like uh, Dennis Alexander, um, whom, uh, whom you're familiar with, who, uh, uh, when he appeals to Stott, you, you, see some, you see things happening that, that you wish hadn't happened. Uh, and and the, the idea is that Stott supposes that, um, that a Neolithic farmer could be Adam, and so really downstream from the beginning of, of the human race. And there's uh, lots of problems with that. Now, that's very different from the view espoused by Derek Kidner, um, who does have a, I mean, he's explicit there, that's a supernatural formation right. of Adam and Eve. Now, it's very important for, for you to be clear as you think about when you're talking about natural and supernatural and what's God's action in the world and, and so forth. I've, I've written on this subject. I am fussy about terminology. I apologize. But uh, the, the formation of Adam, supernatural formation of Adam, does, is not presented and never has been presented as ex nihilo. That is to say, Adam is formed from pre-existing material, dust from the ground. Okay? So... Uh, so the, the idea is that, uh, is that it's supernatural because the dust is not going to organize itself. Now, uh, in, in, Kidner's, uh, in, in Kidner's scenario, he is wanting to affirm that and, uh, and also supposing that the dust has gone through intermediate stages because, after all, you, have been, you and I have been formed from dust to the ground as well, indirectly. So, I mean, that, that's his rationale. Whether you believe it or not, what, what you notice is that, that the key thing, namely the supernatural formation of Adam at the headwaters of humankind, uh, that, that's, the, that's the theologumenon that, that he is most concerned to preserve. Now, uh, again, there, there, there may be some difficulties with it, but, but you see the, the impulse that's behind it. And, that, and that's different, say, from what Stott does, even yes. though Stott, I think, appeals to Kidner, but, but without dealing fairly with him. Yeah, and, and, and I appreciate the fact that Kidner does hold to the supernatural creation of, of Adam and Eve. Uh, in that sense. I just don't think that's anywhere close to the plain reading of the text. Right. And furthermore, so you haven't told me, but I'll tell you what I think is the greatest danger that someone holds my position holds, and that is we desperately do not want to bring the Christian faith into disrepute. Right. Uh, I don't want anyone to say on, on any legitimate terms, look, you're raising this to the level of what I must believe in order to become a Christian. Or this is such an intellectual scandal, I can't be a Christian because you hold to this. And, and so 
let me say that I often try to figure out, could I be an old earther? Uh, could I do that? And I think every theologian needs constantly to ask the question, you know, am I, am I considering my position thoroughly and well? But the problem is, I think by the time you describe your own position, I just don't think it's much less, if any, of an apologetic burden. Um, in other words, I, I, I think if a young earth is going to be a scandal, then the special creation of Adam and Eve is going to be a scandal. If, if, if it's a scandal to reject the geological and radiological evidence, then it's a scandal to, deject, to, uh, to reject the biological evidence. Uh, what I don't see is where those who hold a position other than mine for an old earth are somehow gaining more traction in persuading persons of the truths of the Christian faith that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. An, an, interest, an interesting point. However, um, there's always a however in real life. Uh, so, uh, okay, so there, there's lots of things to be said in, in reply. First of all, biblical faithfulness uh, requires that we ask of the text things that it's providing mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and then not asking of it things that it's not providing. That's very important. Secondly, uh, it was Augustine who, who made the point. You know, you, you spoke about scandal and bringing things into discredit. He, he's concerned that, that a Christian could basically run off at the mouth about scientific matters on which he's not well educated uh, and bring the, the central things into disrepute. Mm -hmm. um, and and that, that's, that, that is part of what it means to minister in this culture. Um, and, and, and then coming back to the, the issue of, of the scandal, well, empirically, it isn't a, a scandal. I mean, term, in terms of, of what I'm able to see. When, when you talk to a biologist and you press them, uh, the, the issue is... Um, uh, can you really get, do you think you really can get a human being from a purely natural process of evolution? And, and, um, and most of them will say, no, of course not. Um, so that, that you're, al you're already there. Now, this is if you talk to them in private. There's, you know, again, there's sociological phenomenon, um, cultural pressure and so forth. Uh, and then further, the, um, the, uh, uh, the, the fruits of, uh, say, reasons to believe and so forth. I mean, they, they, ha they have... Uh, you know, thing, they have something to show for what they do. Uh, and, and people are far more, um, well, they're, they're far more open to uh, that, uh, to, to being addressed on, on the Christian faith when, when it's explained, look, the issue of whether the Big Bang is, is a real thing or not is just not on the table. It's not, it's not important to us. Um, and so that, I mean, that's just empirically uh, verified. Yeah, I think... Uh intellectual and evangelistic candor would require me to say, and hopefully all of us to say, that if uh, we had a minute or two to speak to someone about Christ, and that was it, I don't think we would start with an argument over the age of the universe. <laughs> and uh, there's a sense in which there's a luxury to this conversation, uh, which we should not fail to note. Uh, here we are amongst evangelicals, an opportunity to have a theological discussion and uh, well, I think we're always weighing the apologetic opportunity against the apologetic cost and theological faithfulness. I, I'm just, the older I grow and the more I deal with this, the less persuaded am I that there is even an apologetic advantage to holding to an old earth position. And I think it opens huge theological backdoor vulnerabilities that just in the last decade haven't stayed unopened. 
Um, and and, and uh, it's, it, look, I don't think anyone here represents Biologos, but the interesting thing is, is that when you look at the whole Biologos phenomenon, they are, they are calling for a redefinition of the Christian faith. I mean, certainly in terms of original sin, historical Adam, and all the rest. But what's interesting is they're still assailed from the dominant scientific establishment for being foolish in even addressing the questions and by insisting that there could be some kind of external influence or design to any extent within, uh, within the structure of creation and the story of its existence. So I'll, I'll simply say I'm less persuaded yeah. as time goes on even today. Okay, well, uh, what's it, what's it? hold on one second. With that. I, we're, time is getting a little bit away from us, but I did get word that we can go a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at about 345 in case you're out there worried about going to the bathroom or something. See if you can hold on to that. Um, got a few questions here, and I think, I think they might bring a fine point mm -hmm. on some of what we're saying here. So it's in the back of the mind. It was a version of a question that I had as well. But you are going to come back to the uniformitarianism question. Uh, we you? will try to come back to that yeah. at uh, at least 344. That? <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's, let's make it about 320. No, no, no. We will. Okay, we'll, so. we'll see what we can do here. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Moeller, you have, this is from some anonymous person out there in the audience, you have admitted the strength of the overwhelming evidence for a very old universe and Earth. Yet you conclude on the basis of what you take Scripture to naturally teach that we should conclude that the Earth is very young. Shouldn't the proper conclusion be that we have contradictory lines of evidence and thus a problem to be dealt with, or should Christians ignore the scientific evidence altogether? I don't think the second is helpful or intellectually honest, so I guess we're left with the first uh, of those two options. And uh, I think that's what we're trying to demonstrate uh, here. Um, and that's why when I gave my opening statement, I didn't want to leave that unanswered. So again, I hold to a phenomenological position. I don't believe that scientists are lying to us, nor do I believe that God's deceiving us with something like a parent age. I believe that the cosmos, as we can observe it, given the best tools we have at the time, is telling us a story. I think the scientists don't know the story. Um, and they're operating on their, their own presuppositions. And uh, I, I think that the, uh, the lines of evidence they bring forward actually make sense not just in terms of Genesis 1 and 2, or even just Genesis 1 through 11, but the entire texture of Scripture and the meta-narrative of Scripture and, and taking seriously the events that are recorded in Scripture, the trauma of creation itself, which, which doesn't mean that even if sin hadn't happened, that we'd be able to look at the universe as a clock. Uh, that's not promised to us. But, but beyond that, we do have sin, we have corruption, we have catastrophe, and, uh, and we have divine intervention uh, and providence over all things. I, 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 don't, I don't find that incompatible with any of the scientific evidence that has been brought. Okay, well, one of the simple, again, I'm just a simple guy, one of the simple solutions if we're trying to sort of blend the insights of, the, of you two uh, uh, theologians here would be, wow, that, that Genesis 1, 1 to 2 mm -hmm. being an initial act of creation and then a, a long period of time well, that could really help my position in light of the two lines of evidence that we have. You'll love Why the Schofield Reference Bible. Get the original edition. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess my question... They, they beat us there on that one. <laughs> well, yeah. 
why, why, why wouldn't the natural movement be to say, let's, let's hold on to the six days of creation, but let's add that earlier bit, and that at least helps us buy some time, as it were. Why, why, why wouldn't that be at least a, an initial step one could consider taking? Well, I'll simply say again, it's a presupposition. If you're going to assume some form, ancient, medieval, or modern, of the gap theory, uh, then, then, you, then, then that's fine. A lot of Orthodox Christians have. A lot of the great Bible preachers of the uh, late 19th, especially the early 20th centuries, held to just such a position. Uh, I just want to say, you're just deciding that that is a gap that you're interposing between verse 2 and verse 3, and it gives you a way out. Uh, I think that might have appeared plausible in the 1920s. I, I, I don't think it is now. Uh, if there's a resurgence of the gap theory, it will be because of just what you've argued. Uh, I'll believe that when I see it. I don't think that that is, uh, is, is a growing phenomenon, partly because, and, and uh, Dr. Collins deals with this uh, quite well in his writings, uh, and, and it, when, you're, when you're looking at verses 1 and verses 2 of, uh, of Genesis 1, um, I would just simply argue it sets the stage very quickly for what follows, such that we are not to account for the time that comes before it. Now, I think I heard, again, I, I could be wrong here, but uh, uh, Dr. Collins, that you see opportunities for, for, for an older Earth or older universe in, in the uh, Genesis 1 and 2 right. account. Mm -hmm. But you could also see right. a younger Earth as well, possibly. You just, you just don't think it's a definite case either way. Um, I, I make a distinction between why? things that are, you know, a matter of theological indifference, uh, which, which is how I view this subject, uh, versus things that, which is what some of, the, some of the biologos people, but not all, have done, namely take a scientific theory and begin to redo theology on its basis. I, I, I think that's an important distinction, um, and that's, that, that's what, that's basically the, the fence around the slippery slope. Um, so, uh, but, but the, the actual, the, the gap theory as it was articulated in, in the 19th and early 20th century was that uh, some kind of um, uh, rebellion, some satanic rebellion took place prior to the creation week. Uh, and so the idea is that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and then the earth became formless and void because of this rebellion. Uh, and, and there are all kinds of exegetical difficulties with that. I mean, the, basically, you don't have became in, in the Hebrew text. Uh, and formless and, and empty, formless and void is not presented as the result of a rebellion. It's, right. it's simply, it's just not ready for humans to live there yet. So, um, so I'm, not, I'm not advocating any version of that, that particular theory. Rather, simply making the grammatical observation that the storyline uh, that's a ma the main concern of Genesis 1 begins in 1-3, and God said, and so forth. I mean, that's, that's just the way the grammar works. And so, in verse 1 is just telling us what are the antecedent conditions. Uh, and the antecedent conditions include, in my understanding, this previous act of calling all, the thi all things into existence and then at a time when they are not yet ready for human habitation, that's when God begins with Yehi Or and so forth. Dr. Moeller, I got a question here from someone. What is your sense of the old earth view in general? Is it necessarily connected with a naturalistic worldview? 
Well, no. Uh, you'd have to speak to the proponent of the old earth position. I, and again, it's clear that even though old earth proponents often vastly overclaim what you find in previous uh, figures in church history, whether it's Augustine, who clearly was operating over against Platonism and Neoplatonism, his concern was the scandal that it took God any time to write the scripture. So his inclination was somehow to argue the plausibility of it being instantaneous. And, but then Augustine kind of corrects himself as he goes elsewhere and speaks on the literal sense of Genesis. And, and by the way, thank you for correcting me with Anselm. Just when I say Augustine, I move to Ambrose. Of course you do. Um, but uh, I, I, so you someone do. who holds a young earth position need to say there have been some anecdotal people throughout the history of the church who have held to a contrary position and not because they were naturalists nor committed anything like a modern cosmology. The fact is, though, the intense debate on this is entirely a phenomenon of, uh, of what came after Darwinism. And as I said, I'm using Darwin as a place marker for, for the modern scientific worldview. And, uh, and I do think, in the main, it is driven by an effort to try to harmonize Genesis with that dominant scientific paradigm. So I'm not gonna say they're committed to naturalism. If they're committed to naturalism, they're not Christians. Um, but I think as Christians, they're seeking uh, a harmonization between the modern scientific paradigm and Genesis that I think comes at great cost to Genesis. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's important to appreciate that there are, um, you know, when, when we talk about the consensus reading, um, it, it's important to uh, distinguish between people who just read it and didn't think about it and those who began to ask questions. Uh, and, and what we invoke uh, is the principle that witnesses are to be weighed and not simply counted. Uh, and so the, the witnesses uh, who, you know, who carry a lot of weight, um, and, and it's, the issue is not the age of the earth, but more that what's the plain sense reading. Uh, and so you have, um, well, uh, I mean, Augustine would be an example, John Collett, a very a premier English man of letters in the immediate pre-Reformation era and so forth. Plus you have, Earlier than the than the um, than the 19th century, you have people already beginning to to think about other possible ways of, of reading the, the creation account. So that that um, a pressure from a naturalistic uh, perspective is is probably not the factor. Um, and in fact, an Australian fellow, uh, Andrew Brown, has done a thesis on a history of you know articulation about the creation days and virtually everything. That, that's, that's being discussed nowadays has some antecedent in, in this uh, long history of, of discussion. So it's, it's very important for us to be, uh, to be cautious about, about invoking a, a consensus when it's not there. Um, and also consensus, consensus, it's a fourth declension noun, so the proper, the, <laughs> the proper plural is consensus. So consensus are very, uh, they're, they're different, say, from a binding tradition. The Apostles' Creed is something that, uh, it's not simply a consensus, it, it's a binding tradition. Um, and and I, I would not divert from it at, at the peril of my own soul. Uh, and so a consensus, if that's the way people have read things, is, is, it has less, um, less binding force. And so you know, we, we need to be careful about that. It's, sometimes it's called a traditional reading, but you're borrowing uh, the, the force of that word tradition course, for modern evangelicals, go ahead and do it because the word tradition gets our hackles up. I mean, so, uh, you know, you, you, you're, running, you're running risks. But, but you, you want to be very, very careful and clear on, on how these things function. One of my current projects is on German Romanticism. 
uh, which historically precedes Darwin. You're, you're talking about, so they're not, he's not, they're not responding to Darwin. What they are responding to is this deep nature tradition, uh, which arguably goes back to the ancient Greeks, certainly. And, uh, and so, it, in other words, naturalism precedes Darwinism, as in belief in evolution preceded Darwinism. But I think it's all part of a common intellectual project with continuities. One of, one of the... Uh... The, the, the issue, as, as C.S. Lewis puts it, um, is that uh, basically science was, was not of interest, particularly to religious man, uh, until the latter 19th century, because Darwin began monkeying with his ancestry. You have Freud uh, messing with his soul, uh, and then you have the economists uh, fiddling around with all that is his. So, I mean, so, so, so the, you know, the, the issues prior to that are, are just different. Well, one of, the, one of the things I can appreciate as a person who works in the church as a, in a lay position, but works with pastors a lot, is the fact that uh, Dr. Moeller is, is very gifted at addressing the cultural pushback we're getting from certain uh, scientific theories that are like isms. And uh, your position's very clear. It offers an alternative to that view. It offers something we can teach in Sunday school and so forth. Uh, this, I guess this question is directed to uh, Dr. Collins. Um, what, what is the uh, mm -hmm. cultural pushback that you can give when right. you're saying things like, the earth is old, not sure how old it is. The scriptures don't give us a clear uh, reading on mm -hmm. that. Uh, why, wh how is it that we are to have a, a voice uh, of, of, of you know, salt and light here in this discussion? Let, when, let me when, when, when we've got museums and we've got big boats and very clear uh, <laughs> uh, ways in which we can be uh, countercultural in the other position. Let, 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 me, let me turn that, that question into a different question. Um, what, what, what we look, let's be clear about this. We feel assaulted by the world, do we not? Uh, we, we fear marginalization. Uh, we fear the, the word compromise. Uh, the, these, these are, uh, so we have uh, fears that there's some basis in these fears. I don't mean to delegitimize those things. Um, is our calling as Christians to build the walls higher and thicker? Is that our calling, to make our churches stronger fortresses? I, I think not. I think rather our calling is exemplified for us by people in a much more dire situation than, than what we face, namely the early church. It, it will do everybody a world of good actually to read the early Christian apologists. Uh, the, these people were, uh, were um, the, the intellectual assaults, the, the, uh, the disdain, the fact that they're associated with, with Judaism, and uh, go, go ahead and find Menachem Stern's uh, collection of statements from Greco-Roman authors on Jews and Judaism, and so forth. The Christians are associated with that. Uh, they, the, uh, the philosophical systems from the obviously superior culture of Hellenism with its with its heritage from the pre-Socratics, and you have Plato and Aristotle and Athens and so forth. Uh, and, and so the, it would be very easy to suppose that, that the right response to all these things is to retreat. Rather, what they did was to find the, the things in these perspectives that, uh, were, that provided Velcro for uh, the Christian teaching. Uh, they, they found, for example, in Plato. Plato has a creation story. It's called the Timaeus. 
uh, and it's got some strengths and it's got some weaknesses. Uh, what, what these guys did was, was uh, capitalize on the strengths and then point out the weaknesses as well. So, so that uh, their, their goal was, was to meet people. Um, and, and, and I guess I'll, I'll just put it to you, whoever asked the question or whoever's thinking about this kind of question, I mean, how do you minister to people? Do you tell them you come here and adopt my view and then, then we can talk? Or I'll go to you and I'll find uh, what, what you get uh, and, and we'll build there. If, if you look at the Christian apologists, I'm talking about Justin Martyr, he's famous, but actually more interesting is Theophilus of Antioch. Uh, a little bit later is Athanasius. Um, Athanasius is in a, in a more secure position, but your second century apologists are in danger. Not simply intellectual disdain, but actual physical danger. Uh, and, and what they are doing is appropriating uh, the, the, the tools that, that their culture has provided them with and turning them back on people in a, in a kind and also forceful manner in order to win, their, win a hearing, win their attention, and bring them along to, uh, to, uh, to gospel belief. And that, that, that I think, is, is uh, I mean, I, I think what we're facing is, is how do we deal with the very real sense of being threatened that we face uh, in, in our way of addressing ourselves to the world. Yeah, I think the, we, are, the, we have arrived very close to the end. So if you can, I'm I perfectly willing to give you a last comment here, yeah. uh, one or two minutes. I just want to have the last uh, word, but uh, <laughs> I'll simply say I think that's, that's a very important point. I just think it's half the story. I think that's Paul at Mars Hill, uh, and, and uh, that's exactly what Paul was doing. I consider what we're doing here today to be quite different. It's more like Paul writing to the, I won't say the Corinthians, uh, that raises a whole different set of issues. And I'll say Paul, Paul writing to the Romans, where uh, which, you know, which of us that, is there's a difference. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not. Uh, I, I I don't want to be constantly only concerned about apologetics. I'm concerned with theology, dogmatics, doctrine, <clears throat> pastoral issues, and uh, for that reason, this is the discussion we need to have here. Yes. This is not the dis the discussion I want to have with someone as I'm flying on my next flight. Right. Uh, it's also not a conversation I, I would run from, but uh, I would seek, as Charles Spurgeon would say, to uh, run to the cross, uh, and, and then if we have a luxury such as we do today, to talk about this because it's still important, it's worthy of our discussion. May, may I mention, the interesting that you, would, that, that you would bring up Romans. Romans 1, 19 and 20, uh, the invisible attributes of God are visible in the creation. Right there, and actually a couple of other places, Paul is, as it turns out, he has appropriated parts of the discussion that were going on in the Hellenistic world about whether the invisible creator was visible through the creation. He's a, there's, there's a very important work, used to be attributed to Aristotle, called De Mundo, or Perikosmu, if you read it in Greek, uh, where, uh, and the idea of God is, as being invisible and so forth. All of this is an appropriation on the part of the early Christians of the tools provided for them by this discussion from uh, this alien worldview. Ne nevertheless, it provided them with a useful tool. Well, let's thank our participants for their fine conversation. Thank you.